Okay, let's look at our scripture that can be found on page four of the bulletin. This is John 1, 14 through 18. John 1, 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The word of the Lord. Well, you're all familiar, or maybe some of you, with that old classic corny TV show, Name That Tune. Uh, we're actually going to do a version of Name That Tune called Name That Noise, if you will. And in fact, there's only one noise, but I want to see how adept the congregation is here. So I have gone ahead. Oh, I think it's this one actually under the chair here. I'm going to play a noise, and I want to see if you all can tell what this noise is. In this way, I will determine how intelligent you are. All right, here we go. Sonogram I heard. It's pretty good. But no. Good try. Anyone? Earthquake? No, but good idea. Anyone else? A good answer, Anne, but no. In fact, the chances of you getting this are absolutely zero because it is the sound of wind, but specifically the sound of a Martian wind. I don't know if you've paid attention to the fact that NASA landed a lunar land, uh, not a lunar lander, that would be a moon lander. It's called InSight, landed on Mars. And for the first time, this, this, this lander had... Uh, seismic instruments in it and thus the ability to measure vibration. So that is the sound of humanity hearing wind on Mars for the first time. Uh, apparently blows about 10 miles per hour, blowing over the solar panels. Um, InSight, this lander, is going to measure uh, the seismic activity of Mars, whether it has a liquid core or a solid core, all this sort of information as you know, there's this new goal eventually to get to Mars, and so that is the sound of Martian wind. I found it interesting to hear for the first time a sound that no human has ever heard. This device that we sent a ridiculously long distance away to hear something, to see something, in fact. I think we have a picture of the lander there looking out over this alien Martian landscape. Um, what a powerful tool, a powerful instrument to see a world and to hear a world that we've never experienced. The reason why I brought up this uh, InSight Lander is because in some ways it, it made me think a little bit about the Incarnation. Now it's in reverse, if you will. We sent something a long distance away to hear something, but God sent someone an eternity distance away to communicate something through this person, this word that became flesh. We would be able to understand the character and nature 
of someone that we could never, ever really enter into his world without this one called the word of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, says the scripture, full of grace and truth. And through him, we have beheld God. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And so what is it that Jesus chose to reveal to us? What was so important that God had to send an emissary, indeed wrap him in human flesh, so that we would gain understanding of the character and nature and being of God? The answer is grace. We see it said again and again in this passage that Jesus came full of grace and truth and from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. Indeed, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so what this passage is communicating to us is that Jesus is the face of God but Jesus is also the grace of God. It's in Jesus that we see God's attitude toward the human race, his attitude toward his people. For Jesus is the smile of God. And so I want to tackle these two points, that number one, Jesus is the face of God. In Jesus, we're able to see what God is like, for God has come near. But even more so, point two, that Jesus is the grace of God. That if we want to understand the heart of God and what he thinks about you and me, what we have to do is look at Jesus Christ. For in Jesus, we see the face of God and the grace of God. Well, let's begin with my first point, that Jesus is the face of God. This passage, John, in the first chapter of John, that famous verse of, in the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. John is giving his opening to the Christmas story. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke also give an opening to the Christmas story, but it's markedly different, isn't it? There's stories of wise men and pregnant cousins and, and, uh, and all the, the historical aspects. But John's focus is not historical, is it? It's theological. John was the last of the writers of the gospel. It was written last, and he knew that those topics had already been covered. Rather, he wanted to get into the core theological issues of Jesus' coming. And so he speaks in these verses, this verse in verse uh, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now this word dwelt among us doesn't really uh, speak to the full import of what John is saying. A better translation, uh, an accurate translation would be, in, and the word became flesh and set up his tent among us or tabernacled among us. Now John is speaking to a Jewish audience and he's using words that the Jews would understand and so when they heard this word, that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, they would understand exactly what he was talking about because the tabernacle refers to that initial tent that was created that God told Moses to build and ultimately that morphed eventually into a permanent edifice, the temple of God. Now this tabernacle, and that indeed you can go to still some places and go to the tabernacle. If you remember 
Spurgeon's church was called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. The tabernacle had three specific focuses that we're going to cover because they speak of what Jesus' purpose is. And the first was that the tabernacle was the place where God would put his presence. If you remember, Jesus, uh, excuse me, Moses takes the Israelites out into the desert to Mount Sinai as God instructs them. And there on the mountain, Moses goes up for 40 nights and 40 days. And God gives him the Ten Commandments and then gives some very specific instructions to Moses. And let the Jews make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you, you shall make it concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, all of its furniture, so you shall make it. And along came a list of down to the most minute detail, this temple, this edifice that was to create. Indeed, I think we have a picture of it right here. Uh, the, uh, uh, go back to the other one right here. This was the original tabernacle. And so the first function of this tabernacle was it was to be a place for God's presence. He said, I will put my name in there, this elaborate structure. And so there was the outer court, if you will, this outside area. And then there was, next slide, the inner place, this inner uh, a court here, a holy place, and on the other side, the holy of holies and the ark of the covenant where God would put his presence. And it says in Exodus 40, when the, temple, when the tabernacle was built, then the cloud covering the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The work was finished and the presence of God dwelt in this tabernacle. When the cloud would come down, they would stay the Israelite people. And whenever the cloud lifted, they would move because the cloud determined the whole point of the tabernacle was to be a resting place for the presence and name of the Lord. Indeed, when the instructions for the temple were finally given to David to give to Solomon and Solomon finished the temple, in Chronicles 6.18, at the commissioning of the temple, Solomon said, but will God really dwell on earth with men? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple and the presence of the Lord filled the temple. See, there was an exclusivity to this tabernacle. It was to be the place where the presence of God was. Nowhere else on the earth was it to be but this specific place where God said, I will put my name. You could go anywhere else. You could worship anywhere else that you wanted. But if you wanted to come into the presence of God, it was there. And so when the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, what the gospel writer is saying is that the temple of God became a man. That the word of God was enfleshed. Indeed, even Jesus' name, the word of God, which speaks of the Bible. And what is the Bible but where the Lord says and God said? The Bible is God speaking, if you will. 
Well, the one who spoke all of those words, the word became flesh. And to go into the presence of God was not to go to an edifice, not to go to an elaborate tent structure or a building or even a church, but rather to go into the presence of Jesus Christ. I have been to Israel and I've stood at the temple wall and I've seen the wailing and the prayers as people pray to that temple wall. But the truth and reality is that structure has been demolished. If you go there, you will not find the presence of God. But wherever you are worshiping Jesus Christ, there is the presence of God. Because God himself tabernacled among us as an ordinary man that looked just like you and me. This was the first purpose of the temple. But the second follows. The second purpose was to meet with God. The whole point of God coming closer to us was that so he would be accessible to us. Not that we would worship from afar, but we would worship near, that we would draw near to the presence of God. Indeed, it was Moses who used to go to the temple. The cloud would come down and Moses would enter the temple and he would meet with God face to face, metaphorically speaking, as one speaks to a friend, so Moses would with God. But after Moses, the one chosen by God, the regulations were quite high to meet the benchmark to meet with God. You had to be a member of the priesthood, for one, a descendant of the tribe of Levi. If you were not a part of that heretical line, uh, heretical line, what's the word? Hereditary line. You would not have the, uh, have entree, if you will. When the final instructions of the temple were, uh, were created and the temple was, was built, there were more courts added. There was the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, in which you could enter into the proximity of the temple where God dwelt, but only so far. And then there was the court of the women. And then there was the outer court. And then there was the holy place. And no one could go into the holy place in, except the priests. And then, of course, at the end, there was the most holy place where only one person could enter behind the curtain, the high priest, and only once a year. But as we read John seeing him telling us about this one, the new temple, the word that became flesh, where are the restrictions that list who can enter into the presence of God? Where is the hereditary qualifications? Where is the education requirements? No, indeed, in the person of Jesus Christ, we see him coming and dwelling and fellowshipping with the lowest of people, the shepherds, the children, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the nobodies. See, there was no curtain between Jesus Christ and you and me. Because Jesus came that he would be accessible to all who would seek him. That in this one, we would see the glory of God, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Now we have to ask ourselves the question, for it says we have seen his glory. 
What does that mean? Was he beautiful or radiant when you came across him? The scriptures actually say that he was quite plain looking. There was nothing in his appearance or majesty to draw from an external sense. He looked like you or me. No, it wasn't his outer appearance. Well, perhaps it was in the demonstration of his miracles, for he did amazing things. But not everyone saw his glory, did they? Even in the face of his amazing acts. Indeed, some people wanted to kill him, right, when he would do something amazing. No, John is speaking of a spiritual glory. Not of the physical eyes, but of the eyes of the heart. As we look at his life, as we look at how he speaks and how he acts, how he loves and how he dies, people saw his glory then, and we can see his glory now because we don't have to see him physically to see his glory, do we? Remember Jesus chiding Thomas? Unless I put my hands in his nail marks and feel his side, I will not believe. And Jesus comes along and says, Come, Thomas, you have seen and now you believe. Blessed are those who do not see, yet believe. The glory of God, we can still see through the presence and the person of Jesus Christ, for he is resurrected, is he not? Is his word still not given for us today? Where we can see the glory of God as we hear him who is alive. Just like we needed that inside lander, so through it we could see Mars in a new light, in a new way. So in the person of Jesus Christ, we see the face of God and the grace of God. What John is saying is the way that people meet God today, the way that we see God today and get to know God today is by looking at the glory of Jesus Christ. So where do you go to meet God? Perhaps you go to the majesty of nature and you go out into the beauty and the looking at the sea and the mountains and all of the gracious, wonderful beauty of this blue planet. But it doesn't speak back to us, does it? Not if we're looking for God to hear a word from him. If you go try to find God in other religions, they will give you a prescription, a number of steps that you must ascend to reach up to the highest heights to meet with God. Perhaps you've given up looking for God. Why would he want to meet with me? I'm not qualified. I'm not religious. Heck, I'm not even good. But Jesus came for ordinary people. He came for lost people. Like you and me. And he is alive today. And you can behold his glory if you come before him seeking him. As Jesus said in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and be with him and him with me. Jesus is the face of God. 
But this brings me to my second point, that Jesus is the grace of God. What do I mean by that, that he is the grace of God? See, there was a third function of the temple, wasn't there? A place for the presence of God, a place to meet with God, and a place for sacrifice, a place for sacrifice of sin. If we can go back, Ron, I don't know if you can go back to that original picture of the temple, the bigger one with the outer court. It was the same way in the temple. If you were to enter into the temple, the first thing you would see, indeed that gold thing, is an altar. It's right in front of your face if you would open the doors or open the tent. And what was this altar for? It was an altar for burnt offerings. It was for where you were to bring sacrifice for sin. For to the ordinary person, there was no other reason to be there. You couldn't get around it, so to speak. But if you were of the Levite, uh, if you were a Levite and you were of a particular descent and you were a priest and you did have the entree into the outer court, the next thing you would see is the basin right on the other side of the altar. It's a big vat of water. It's a place for washing. It's a place to become clean. For nobody comes into the presence of God with clean hands, right? But if you were the high priest, if you did have entree once a year into the inner court, you would never, ever, ever come without blood, without sacrifice for yourself and sacrifice for the people. For God is a holy God. But let me ask you the question, when one came into the presence of Jesus Christ, what offering did one have to bring in order to speak him, to speak to him, to see his face? What special washings needed to take place in order to have an audience with the word that became flesh? None. Because Jesus came full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, verse 16 says, we have received grace upon grace. What does it mean that he came full of grace and truth? Well, what does the word grace mean? I looked it up. In the Latin, the word grace or gracious means goodwill. In fact, we say this, don't we, often. Uh, glory to God. Uh, what is it? Goodwill to men on whom his favor rests. In a theological sense, it means God's unmerited favor, his love or his help, his mercy and his compassion. Jesus came full of goodwill and unmerited favor for undeserving people. Jesus said in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. And he also said in John 12, For I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. He was full of grace in the way that he acted, in the words that he spoke to a lost world. And he was also full of truth. What does it mean that he was full of truth? Remember that Jesus is the image of God. And he's a reflection of his nature, not physically speaking. God is a spirit, the Father. Jesus was in flesh, but he's a picture of his nature, of his 
name, if you will. And what is the nature of God? There was another person in the Old Testament that said, show me your glory. His name was Moses. And God said, I will hide you in the cleft of the rock and I will pass over with my hand upon you and then you can see my back and I will proclaim my name to you. And as the Lord passed by Moses, he proclaimed his name, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That is the nature of God. In the Old Testament, he provided a mechanism, a way in which these people could be forgiven of their sins temporarily. But he gave a promise to mankind from the beginning, did he not? All the way back to Adam and Eve that I will crush the head of the serpent. And through Abraham, that out of your offspring I will bring one who will bless all the nations. When he's full of truth, he's full of truth to himself and his nature and what he promised that he would do for mankind. All of the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. And so when he came full of grace and truth, grace in his compassionate nature to mankind and truth to himself and who he is, his nature to be gracious and compassionate and his promise to himself to forgive and to redeem his people. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. What does it mean grace upon grace? It means that his grace never runs out. When one portion of his grace is used up, in its place comes another. How far does the favor of God in Jesus Christ extend? You can't outrun it. You can't escape it if you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. Thank goodness. What if Jesus just came enough with grace for my past sins and my past conduct? See, I have a secret for all of you. I continue to sin. Even though I know the truth and I know what's right, there's a brokenness in myself. Does his grace extend even to that? For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And so the passage says, from the fullness of Jesus Christ, we have received. It's a gift that's already been given. Indeed, it says, all have received. And all means all who believe in his name. From the greatest to the smallest. See, in the end, the reason that we see the glory of Jesus Christ is because we have received his grace. I didn't grow up in the church, but my parents were at least godly enough to bring us to Christmas and Easter. And I'd hear the story, and it would go over glazed eyes, maybe get a sense once or twice about the holiness of God. But it was when I heard his grace, his unmerited favor for me, a sinner. That's when my eyes were opened to his glory. 
It is through his grace that we see his glory. For the grace of God allows us to see the face of God. His very nature, his very character. Is there anyone else, anywhere else that you can go to receive grace that never ends? I have the best wife in the world. She's so gracious and kind to put up with me. There's no way you would put up with me as long as, as much as my wife does. But all humans have a limit, don't we? But from the fullness of Jesus Christ, we have received grace upon grace. It is because of his nature and his character that his love and grace never runs out. I finish with this comment here where he speaks about Moses, doesn't he? For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now be careful here because it's easy to sort of contrapose these two things. The law is this sort of law of works type thing and Jesus Christ gives grace, but that's not what he's saying. The law was gracious as well, wasn't it? It was given to a people that God had rescued. Indeed, David in the psalm says, be gracious to me in your law. But the law had a place where it ended, didn't it? Because the law couldn't sacrifice for me. The law couldn't get up on a cross and die for me. The law couldn't stand in my place. The law was given through Moses, but grace came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is greater than any other prophet, any other religious figure, any other place or person that you could ever go to to find the unmerited favor of God. So this Christmas season, where are you going to find the fullness of grace? You can go to a majestic tabernacle or cathedral. I've gotten to see some beautiful ones that are as cold as stone because you cannot find the grace of God in a building. I've given my heart to countless people who I thought could give me what I wanted. But in the end, the well always runs dry, doesn't it? But the word became flesh and templed among us so that we might see his glory. And what is the message of Jesus Christ? God loves you so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is the smile of God. So let his smile beam upon you today. Humble yourself enough to receive his grace. For it comes for ordinary people, you and me. He came to save and seek the lost. Have you been found by Jesus Christ yet? You can see him today. For he is here for all who would call upon his name. Jesus is the face of God. He's the grace of God. He is the smile of God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We never can stop thanking you. 
for the message that you sent to us on planet Earth. Your very son, Jesus. The fullness of you and your compassionate and gracious nature. Let us rest in the message that you give. Be not afraid. For I am with you. Thank you, Lord, that we do not need to doubt that your grace extends as far as the east is from the west to those who fear your name. Pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.